Well, good morning again. Welcome to Randall Church. My name is Pastor Milo. It's good to be here this morning. Uh, how many of you woke up to a frozen windshield uh, today? Okay, th- three of you. What, what, the, the whole area was pretty cold this morning, right? Okay. I don't think there was three houses that were cold and the rest of you were like, yeah, it was fine. No worries. All right, so we all woke up to a very cold morning. Uh, myself, the vehicle that I drove today uh, hadn't been started in a few days, and so the other vehicle was a little bit of the ice had been removed, but today's vehicle was a little bit of work to get it clear. So how many of you, uh, as you were driving to church this morning, you thought to yourself, I wonder if I want to live in Buffalo anymore? <laughs> well, we are glad you're here today. I lived in South Carolina for 10 years. I want to make an argument for you here that might change the reason why you would want to live here in Buffalo. So living in South Carolina for 10 years, I think that you would change your opinion if you also went somewhere else uh, for a little longer. Why do I say that? Well, because in living in South Carolina, we had in our backyard, uh, we, we did not have a yard. We had a sandy patch that we called our backyard. Uh, we would do everything that we could uh, multiple times a year. We would go out, and again, you've heard from me here from the pulpit before, I grew up on a farm, and so I thought I was Mr. Farmer, and so I would take grass seed and go out and throw it just like Jesus did all around the backyard and, and make sure that it was all coming up, and, and nothing happened. It would rain one time, and all of that would slide off to the side, and we would get a patch of grass this wide uh, at the edge of the property. Why? Because if you ever go to the beach on any of our beaches along the Atlantic coast, you will not find any grass. Grass doesn't grow at the beach. And so you can water it all day long and you can put all that time in and the sun beats down and it is impossible to have a yard. And so every spring when we would come back here to Buffalo to visit family or different things like that, we found ourselves driving through and we would normally come up through like Salamanca area and make our way through there. So as we're driving through Salamanca and Ellicottville, we are just mesmerized by the landscape going, look at this snow-fed grass. It's unbelievable. It was so green and so rich and so plush. And it was like, well, what type of grass do you plant? They said, I don't plant grass. This is buffalo grass. It is a beautiful thing. And so uh, as you realize that this isn't such a bad place to live. We love the change of weather. I will be going skiing this afternoon with my family for as many minutes as we can stand it out there, and then we'll drive back home. Uh, But it's just a beautiful place to live. When we were there in South Carolina, there was a vision uh, tour that I went on one time. Uh, the design behind that, we were in a church plant. It was to, the, by design was to take you to different parts of the city uh, and see where else you might need a church planted. So in a very similar fashion, and I don't recommend this because you actually do see in Scripture a lot of different examples of seed being thrown and the harvest growing and all of those things. And so this particular group that put together this vision tour, they gave us fanny packs. Does everyone know what a fanny pack is? It's a pack that goes on your fanny. That's what a fanny pack is. And it's this little bag, and you put it around your waist. They gave one to every single person on this bus. There was 25, 30 of us. Uh, And then they sent us into a pretty sketchy neighborhood and said, this is where we want a church. And so inside of our fanny packs was birdseed. And what they told us to do is to walk through the neighborhood two by two, praying for the neighborhood of what God might do, and then with your fanny pack, spread bird seed 
so that you would have a very tangible way to remember that you prayed for that neighborhood because you were spreading seed everywhere. In, in idea, in concept, it's okay. But imagine with me if you are sitting on your front porch, it's the south, it's hot, there's a, cold, a hot air blowing through, you're sitting on your front porch, and me and my idiot buddy are walking along, wave to you, and throw bird seed in your yard. And then go on to the next, and just keep throwing bird seed everywhere we go. So, and then, I don't, you know, we don't know what happened after that. Like, was their yard full of vultures after that, or some type of, I, I just don't think it was a great idea. But it did remind me, and every time that I see the passage that we're looking at today, I'm always reminded of that story. So today we're in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. If you've got a Bible, make your way there. I'll be in the New International Version. Uh, if you've got that black Bible that's in the pew in front of you, Luke chapter 10 is on page 1086. 1086. Luke chapter 10. Seems like there's got to be a better way to go about sharing the gospel than throwing bird seed into people's front yards. The end of the story is there was a church planted in that area. I don't know the end of the story as to whether or not that church, uh, you know, brought together a lot of bird lovers or anything like that. Luke chapter 10, page 1086. This is the first point. It's a fill-in for you this morning. If you got that white fill-in, uh, it's in, the, in your bulletins. This is where we're going to start today. This is the crucial message. The gospel mission is compelling. This is where we're going to start this morning. The gospel mission is compelling. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 10, it says this, after this. So what are we after? Well, our sermon last week covered what we're after. When Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem, that's what this sermon series is about. Jesus could go to Jerusalem in about a three-day journey, but it took him three months. Why? Because he wanted to set some things in order, uh, share some really specific things for his disciples to learn from. And we are going on that journey with Jesus to Jerusalem. And so now that he set his face towards Jerusalem, he is moving forward. Uh, he is uh, looking for those who will be followers of Christ, and he defines what a follower is. We talked about last week versus what a fan is. So after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. There's a few things we need to look at when we look at this passage to kind of give us our concept to understand. So, so wheat was a harvest that was very important to them uh, in that culture. That was, that was a life-giving food for them to be able to have in that culture. When we look at this passage, it's also important for us to remember, even in that story that I told you this morning, the harvest is not about the number of churches or the number of Christians in an area. Certainly not. The harvest is about what? It is about people, not churches, not missionaries, not ministries or nonprofits. It's about people. When Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, he is talking about people. If you spent your time uh, bundling up all the different uh, straw and all the different chaff and all that, you, you bundle all of that up together and you spend all your time putting it in barns and all of that, you're missing the point. So that's using the, the analogy of what they would do for their crops. If you're doing that with people, that means you are gathering together all of the people who are already believers, and you're bundling them up and putting them in different barns and that type of thing. That is not what Jesus is demonstrating here. He's also talking about don't harvest too early or don't harvest too late. 
He said, the field is ready unto the harvest. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the field. Similar time frame. I kind of was looking through this verse and and studying through this verse. Uh, This is a number of years ago now. And it became very important to me. It was a revelation to me, and maybe it would be one to you this morning. Now, this passage is not about the number of workers needed in the field. It actually is saying here, pray that the Lord would send work. Pray that he would send you out, that he would allow you to go out and work in the fields. Sometimes we get the idea that, that Jesus was trying to send as many people as he possibly could out to work in the field. We have in this example, he has sent 72, or some of your translations will say 70. There's a, a discrepancy between some of the translations, whether it was about 70 or if it was specifically 72 uh, men who were sent out two by two. I'm not going to get caught up in that. Let's say roughly 70. About 70 people uh, were sent out. And so he could have sent 7,000 people. During this time, Jesus was gathering. We had the feeding of the 5,000. We had another feeding of 4,000. There were men, women, and children there. There was many more than that that were there. Jesus could have sent all of them out into the harvest field. But no, he sent 12 disciples. He sent 70 others. 72 others in this translation here. He could have sent them out. And he says, pray that you might be sent out. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Ask him whether you could be one of them that could, be, could go and be sent out. There's only a few. And then on top of that, verse 3 says, go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. I talked to Mario this morning before coming up here and preaching because I served in the Marine Corps. I was recruited by a Marine Corps recruiter, but I never served as a Marine Corps recruiter. Does that make sense? I served in the Marine Corps. I was recruited by a recruiter, but I was never a Marine Corps recruiter. Mario was. When he talks about his military service, if you ever ask him about it, he has PTSD from recruiting service, not from his time overseas. His recruiting service in Brooklyn was the toughest time for him and his family uh, that he served in the Marines. Why? Because he was away from his family so much. Uh, Those quotas came every month. It was a very difficult thing for them and their family as they were going through that time. So a a Marine Corps recruiter, compared to other services or, or, or whatever, there's a different tactic that we have. And I asked him about it this morning. He said, it doesn't matter how many people you have on your recruiting list. It matters how many people ship, how many people actually leave and go to boot camp. And so you can have 100 people on your recruiting list, but if none of them ever actually get on the bus and go off to boot camp, you don't have anyone on your list, basically. And so the idea that the model, the quote of the Marine Corps, as you are probably aware, is the Marine Corps is looking for a few good men, the few, the proud United States Marines. So in that, there's only a few that actually go. The Marine Corps recruiting technique is not how much money can I give you for college. It is not how many years could you serve and then not be eligible to serve anymore. It is not where would you like to have your duty station, what warm climate would you like to be at. Actually, the Marine Corps technique is, I don't think that you could hack it. I don't think that you're tough enough. And if you really think that you can get through me, then maybe you'd be good enough to get through boot camp. That's actually the approach of a Marine Corps recruiter. And they fill their quota year after year after year. 
Jesus is having the same type of approach. He says, sign up for me, sign up with me. I'm going to send you out into the harvest, but here's what, the, what we have waiting for. You are going out like lambs among wolves. I'm not sure how much you know about lambs and wolves, but I don't know many stories about the time that the lambs gathered together and beat up the wolf. There's not many of those stories out there about the time that they jumped the wolf in the corner and sent him back home to say, don't come back here anymore. That doesn't happen very often. So the lambs, going out among lambs among wolves was a very difficult task. And Jesus, his approach to recruiting was recruiting those only who are compelled by the mission. The gospel mission is compelling. He's saying, look out into the fields. They are white unto harvest. There is work to be done, and only a few are going to go. Only a few are going to go. Why? Because he's going to thin the herd himself, but also because only a few will follow through. He just dealt with three different examples in, in Luke chapter 9 that we talked about last week of men who said, I will follow you wherever you go, whenever you say to go, and do whatever you say to do. And he said, really? And each of those men turned back. The gospel mission is compelling. Does your heart beat for those who are lost? For the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Do you find that a compelling vision? You should, but do you? Because there's only a few who actually will go, a few who will actually respond. So first, the gospel mission is compelling. Secondly, the gospel method is strategic. The gospel method is strategic. Look at verse 4. Do not take a purse or a bag or sandals. If you're a man, you shouldn't be carrying a purse anyway. But do not take a purse or bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. So as we open this up, there's a very definite strategy, a very specific approach what they're going about here. <coughs> when he says, uh, don't take any of these things that are going to distract you. Don't greet anyone on the road. These things will distract you. They will pull you away from the mission that you are on. Don't worry about what type of backpack you're carrying or how good your clothes look in the process. Get out there and do what you were told to do. Then, it says, when you enter a house, be pleasant. Be encouraging. Have, have a good conversation. Have something to talk about. Far too many of us miss this part. Are you a pleasant person to talk to? Are you generally happy about what God is doing in your life? This is a very strategic approach. You need to understand that Jesus was laying out a strategy. He was laying out a plan for these 70, 72 to follow through on. I once had an opportunity in St. Louis. It's where my brother-in-law lives. Uh, me and a couple of friends is before he was my brother-in-law. He was just my buddy at that point. But we went to visit him. And for the only time in my entire life, I was a street musician. So coming out of uh, the, the baseball stadium there, uh, there's all these that we went to a game and we noticed there's all these musicians playing out and there's people giving them money to play, to play their instrument. I said, well, I can play an instrument and he can play an instrument and my buddy can play an instrument. Let's go down here tomorrow and see if we can't make some money. We made, in 45 minutes, we made $150. 
We were strategic about where we were located. We, we looked the day before and we noticed that all these people were getting onto the, the train system, the subway system. And so uh, you would have to go and you would put in your money and, and they would kick out change. And sometimes that particular one would kick out dollar coins or is there a $2 coin? Maybe just dollar coins and they were coming back out. And so that's where we set up. And so we played music and everybody else uh, they, they were all playing all along, but we were right there, right in the middle of things, and we made a lot of money because we were strategic about the location that we were in. So we did that on, let's say, a Friday night. We came back. There's a Saturday afternoon baseball game, and we set up in the exact same spot, and the police were waiting for us when we set up because they also knew that this was a very strategic place for someone to be. And actually, all of the other street musicians had a permit with the city to be there, and we were just a couple of knuckleheads thinking we'd make a quick buck. They threatened to take our instruments. They yelled at us. They kicked us out. Interestingly enough, my brother-in-law is now one of the police officers in the city. It was very strategic. Jesus' method was very strategic here. He says, don't just go wander around talking to people. He said, be specific. Go to, go to a house first and see if there's someone that you can talk to. Look for a person of peace so that if you have a person of peace, you've got a foothold there. Verse 7, stay there eating and drinking whatever they give you for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move from house to house. When you enter a town and you are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. My grandmother used to always say, sit down and stay a while. Anyone else's grandmother say that? we come in and, and she'd always have cookies off to the side and she'd tell us kids or even tell my dad, come in, sit down, stay a while. And my mom would always know if we had sat down and stay a while at grandma's because we'd have cookies on our breath. But sit down and stay a while. The idea here is uh, not moving around from house to house. Why? Because a relationship was going to form. It was very strategic. It was a plan to say, if you're going to be in this town, if you're going to be in this neighborhood, be intentional about the relationship that you form, the re relationship that you build. And it also says here that you should be a hard worker. And it's appropriate that you would get paid for the work that you're doing. This is a passage that we look at as, as vocational ministry. When it looks at, you look at a missionary. Why do we send missionaries to the mission field? Why do we pay their bills for them? Because they're doing hard work. We ought to pay for their bills. Why do you pay me as a vocational pastor here as a church? Because this says here that if you are working, uh, you deserve your wages. Be a hard worker and it's appropriate to get paid for your wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and you are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. I went and visited uh, John LaRavia in China. I think you can say China. Maybe it's East Asia. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say China. All right, East Asia. I went to East Asia. And we went and visited him, and, and, and some of what their teams do is they go out, very similar to this, go out to the villages and the areas uh, there. And so as we went, <clears throat> they would say, go and, and visit uh, with the locals. And when they offer you something to eat, eat it. There's nothing more offensive than coming to a person's home, asking if you could stay with them, asking if you could spend some time with them. And when they offer you a meal, they, you say, no thanks, I don't actually like you that much. Don't be offensive. Verse 9, heal the sick and there, and who are there, and then tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now, what does this mean? Well, remember, Jesus had sent them out ahead to the towns and cities that he was going to be going through. The king is here is what they were sharing. He is on his way. He is coming to your village. He is coming to your town. We want to tell you about him. We want to tell you why he came. We want to share these things with you. 
And it would say here that Jesus had even given them the authority, the spiritual authority, to heal them. But actually, who was coming in behind them but Jesus himself, who would really be able to heal, heal them and heal them spiritually and emotionally and physically as well. But their responsibility was to come in and say, we want to tell you about what Jesus has done. We want to tell you about what Jesus can do in your life. We want to tell you what he's done in my life. And they are missionaries there for the king, for the Lord Jesus Christ, introducing them to the one who would bring kingdom and bring salvation. There's only a few people who are responding to this call, and yet they were not special people. Their responsibility was to do what? Talk about Jesus. Tell about the one who is coming. Talk about the one who had changed their life and healed them spiritually, emotionally, and physically as well. This is a very strategic approach. The gospel method is strategic. Thirdly, your third fill-in, the gospel message will be rejected. The gospel message will be rejected. Verse 10, but when you enter a town and you are not welcomed, go into its streets and say. So verse 10 says, but when, so they would clearly be rejected at some point. Verse 11 says, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. Now if you look, verse 9 and verse 10, take your pen, pencil, uh, there's one in front of you, there, just circle that. Verse 9, verse 10, the approach is different, but the thing that is being told, the, the message they're going to say is what? Exactly the same. The kingdom of God has come near. And then, check out what they get to do as a response to this. The kingdom of God. So you shake the dust off your feet. The kingdom of God is that near. And then verse 12, you get to go on a rant. You get to say this. I tell you, it would be more bearable on that day for Sodom and for this town. So imagine, if you will, one of these disciples just out in the middle of the street, screaming at whoever will listen, dancing around, acting like a fool. Woe to you, Chores, and woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, then they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and in ashes. But it would be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up into the heavens? No, you will go down into Hades. So just throw a fit out in the middle of the street. Verse 16, whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. Whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. It is important for you and I to realize when we read this passage, the charge that he is giving the disciples, the charge that he is giving us, that it is the message that will be rejected. The message will be rejected. When we truly preach Jesus' message and do what he did, we can trust that the message will be rejected. They are rejecting the message of Jesus Christ rather than rejecting you or rejecting me. And if you can separate those two, you will see the difference between the two. Unfortunately, sometimes to our own obnoxious manner, obnoxious approach, or a lack of love, people reject you and me rather than the gospel. How many times have you been around someone who you really do feel like, man, if they could see past the politics, if they could see past the way that the church has behaved, if they could see past the way that I have behaved, they could fall in love with Jesus. We do not want to be a hindrance. We do not want to be a blockade. We do not be, want to be what keeps people from Jesus. This should never be the case. 
The reality in many situations is it's all about approach. Approach trumps content every time. Approach trumps content every time. What do I mean by that? What you have to say cannot be heard if you package it incorrectly. What you have to say cannot be heard if you package it incorrectly. This should never be the case. A man on the street with a bullhorn who's waiting outside of a, of a baseball game, waiting outside, doing anything, and, and telling people, repent or you, must, you will all perish. Throwing a fit. The reality is, if he's looking at this passage as a root for where he's coming from and why he's telling people that they are going straight to hell, straight to Hades, as it says here, he missed the first part of this passage. The approach is all wrong. Why? Because first, they were supposed to enter the house and try to find a person of peace. And then if they were in that town and still the person would not respond and still the person would not uh, follow what they were teaching or even respond in a positive way to what they were teaching, then there was the secondary response, the bullhorn response, if you will. So anytime that we come with the wrong approach and we repel people away from Christ, we are at fault. But understand, at the end of the day, the gospel is offensive. Jesus is offensive to people. Why? Because he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. As long as Jesus continued to say that, as long as he said, I am the Messiah, the one that you have been waiting year after year after year for, there would be people who would push back and fight against that regardless of how it was packaged. The same is true today. People want to believe that Jesus was a good teacher. People want to believe that he taught a good moral code that if we all lived by, we would just get along a little bit better, but they cannot seem to get their minds around the fact that Jesus said he is God, their creator. Jesus said that he is the Messiah, the Holy One, and there is no other way except through Jesus, and that is what people will reject. We need to know the difference between people rejecting us and rejecting the message of the gospel. People will reject the message of the gospel. And so what does Jesus tell us to do? He says, people will reject the message. Shake it off. Shake the sand off your feet and move forward. Thirdly, or fourthly, the, the mobilized gospel, this is a fill-in, the mobilized gospel brings Jesus joy. The mobilized gospel brings Jesus joy. Now, if you imagine they all come back, they've been gone for a little while, they've gone out in every direction, there's 72 of them. They've all gone out in twos. And so there's a lot of reports that have to come back. They have this huddle and they say, will anyone stand up and tell us what's happened? There's different people stand up and they give a PowerPoint presentation. And let everybody know uh, what they've seen and what they've experienced. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And he responded, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. 
He said, you have experienced some of the most incredible things. He's, he's kind of summarizing. He said, I, I've given you power over all of these things. And so you, you would say in this room, there was an example of each of these things that were given, that God had given them authority over snakes, that God had given them authority over the enemy and scorpions and all these different powers God had provided for them as they had gone out. But he said, don't get distracted about the things about the power of God and the authority of God without getting excited and rejoicing that your names, verse 20, however, do not rejoice that the Spirit submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. We don't hear about it as often anymore, but the idea that someone would knock on your door with a big check and say, congratulations, you have won $5 million with Reader's Digest sweepstakes, right? Raise your hand if you've ever won a million dollars that way. All right, someone raised their hand. I don't believe you. <laughs> the thought that someone would knock on your door, pound on your door and say, come on out here, and they've got balloons and they've got cameras and they say, you have just won a million dollars and people run around the house and they act like a fool and they're so excited about what has just happened. And Jesus here is saying, really? If someone comes up to the front, or if we send it out in an email and we say, so-and-so has accepted Christ, John Smith has accepted Christ this week, and you go, wow, that's cool. So who's going to win the Super Bowl? He says, why are you rejoicing about seeing God move and God work? Let's rejoice about those whose names are written down in the book of life. Did you see all the Bills fans, the videos of all of us, acting like a fool, running around in the snow, excited, dancing, throwing their kids in the air because we broke the 17-year playoff drought? How many of you saw this? I mean, it's, it's all over the place. The, the news was reporting it pretty well. I don't know how many of you also saw the week following how many videos of Bills fans acting like a fool, running around in the snow, throwing their TVs away, lighting their Bills jerseys on fire. Have you, did you see those videos as well? Because they're fans. We're all fans. Verse 21 says, At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows what the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. He's having this conversation between God the Father, himself, God the Son, and he's saying, isn't it, God, you are so good. Father, you are so good for revealing these things to these children. He's not talking to a group of children. He's talking to grown adult men, and he just says, it was nice that these little, these little kids can start to figure it out. You know, you and I need to get off our high horse sometimes and understand that the faith of a child, the understanding of a child is sometimes what we need to have to understand the complexity and the simplicity of the gospel. Why? Because when they understood it, it was revealed to them, they saw the power behind it. Verse 23, he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see this, but they did not see it. And to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. People have been waiting a long time for this, he says. 
He said, you are getting to see God move in ways that people have been praying for for year after year, for generation after generation. In western New York right now, we are seeing churches grow and thrive in a way that has not been in a number of years. If you look at the statistics of people finally beginning to see uh, lives change and churches are beginning to grow and church plants are beginning to grow and it's only because many, many people long before us were praying in earnest for this area. And we pray that that curve continues to swell and we will continue to see people grow and continue to see lives change. We need to understand and Jesus is telling his disciples, what you are experiencing here is what generations have prayed for. And in his case, the generations would talk about for years to come. People have waited a long time for this. The gospel mission is compelling. The gospel method is strategic. The gospel message will be rejected. The mobilized gospel brings Jesus joy. He was celebrating. He was excited. Don't you think that these men had something to talk about after that huddle? Don't you think that after coming back and seeing all of these ways that God had moved and then seeing their Messiah, the Savior that they had been telling everyone was about to come, seeing him passionately worshiping and rejoicing for what God was doing, don't you think that they had something to share with their friends and family when they went back home? <coughs> People talk about what they're passionate about. Sometimes we, we think that it's weird or offensive for us to talk about what's going on here in our church or what's going on in our home when it comes to spiritual development of our children. When you look around your office, when you look around your family at the Thanksgiving meal, people talk about what they're passionate about. You expect someone to talk about uh, Tupperware, if that's what they're selling. You expect people to talk about their new diet pill that they're on because they're seeing success from it, their new weight loss program because they're seeing success from that. You expect them to talk about that. They expect you to talk about Jesus. Why? Because if it's compelling and if it's going to change your life, then you ought to be talking about it. All conversations are important. Some conversations are crucial. All conversations are important, but some conversations are crucial. Joseph Grenny wrote a book called Crucial Conversations. It's basically written to uh, office and business. It's a business book, but here's three different criteria. It says, you are stumbling into a crucial conversation if these three criteria show up. If you have opposing views, if you have strong emotions, and if you have high stakes. If it's a high stakes game, you're in a crucial conversation. Then it matters very distinctly how that conversation moves forward. Do you see your gospel conversations as crucial conversations? Do you see it as a high-stakes game? This, this conversation affects eternity in the life of the person who is there across from you. Do you see that? As the band comes forward this morning, I want you to, to kind of get that mindset to understand that there are times, there are conversations that are crucial. There are moments where Jesus, just like he was standing there with his disciples, he is saying, now is the time. Go, the fields are white unto harvest. They weren't ready before, and they're only going to be ready for a few moments. 
They may not be ready tomorrow. They might have gone past this prime. But right now, the field is ready to harvest. And he's telling his disciples to go. The fields are ready. There's a crucial conversation that needs to be had. The stakes are high. Yes, emotions will play in. So approach this thing carefully. But it is time for you to talk about Jesus. This morning, if you don't know who Jesus is, I pray that this morning was that crucial conversation. I pray that I did not tread back from the light. You need to know who Jesus is. You need to know that he died on the cross for your sins and for mine and that he is the Savior. He is the Lord. And I would love, and there are other people here who would love to carry on further dialogue with you about that. In 2018 here, we have specifically changed our format and our service so that we have our offering time is coming up right now. And I'll pray for that in just a moment. But that secondary reason behind that is so that you can respond. That's what those connection cards are in the pew in front of you. So you can write something down and say, God is challenging me in this way. Will you please write it down, drop it in the offering plate, start a conversation, start a dialogue that we can interact with each other on. Is this moment a crucial conversation for you? Secondly, is this moment challenging you to a crucial conversation that you need to have? Early, I told you about Victor and the, the conversation, the time was right. Well, that took months. That took months of sitting there and interacting with Victor on a surface level to realize the day that things were a little bit off. And it's as if God was putting up that word bubble or whatever to say, you know what? Now is the time to say something. In your life this week, this morning, is there something triggering for you that says, this is the conversation that I need to have? I need to approach it with grace. I need to be loving about it, but I need to have this conversation. I pray that you would do so. Ushers, if you'll come forward this morning. <coughs> I want to be reminded as we go out, we are going out as sheep among wolves. The challenge is not easy. The challenge is not comfortable, but the challenge is real. The mission of God is compelling. And in all of that, it is through his power. It is through his work. These disciples were not able to heal because of their own strength, their own power. They were healing in the name of Jesus, the one who would come behind them. And I pray this morning, as you respond, as you bring your tithes and your offerings before the Lord this morning as well, that this would be a crucial moment for you, that you would respond because of who Jesus is. Not because of who Randall is, or who I am, but because of who Jesus is. And in doing so, you would be able to celebrate like the disciples did here with Jesus. Dear Lord, we thank you so much. Pray that your word has touched hearts this morning. Pray, Lord, as voices will be raised in a few moments of singing and worshiping and glorifying you, Lord, that those would be hearts that know and understand the moment of crisis that is upon them. Lord, I pray that the gospel would have some type of spark, could not be just set aside as a good idea, but no, this, this is a high stakes game. And Lord, the gospel can change lives. Your son came to change the world and he has changed my life and he has changed others' lives here and he wants to change every person in this room. So if you're here this morning and you wanna respond, I pray that you do that by dropping something in the offering plate or meeting me in the back after this. In Jesus' name we pray.